What an incredible thing it is to know that this God whom we're singing about, this God of justice and mercy, is accessible to us every minute of every day, those of us who trust in Him through His Son, and that He hears our worship today, and it is pleasing, it is an, a pleasing aroma to Him, that He loves us, He cares for us, and He delights in the praise of His people. And so we're here this morning in light of that to see God, to behold Him through His Word. That is where we see His glory. I've recently been reading a book by John Piper called A Peculiar Glory. And in that book, he discusses how the, the Scriptures are really like a window where we see the vista of God's glory. And it's through the Scriptures that God that we begin to behold God's glory there in the pages of the sacred text. And so here we come to the Bible this morning, not just to learn a few lessons for life, not just to uh, get some technique, not to increase our, our moral standing or sense of, of uh, welfare or maybe even our own self-righteousness, but we come here this morning to behold the glory of the Lord. That's why we open up the Bible and do this uh, thing called a sermon. And uh, this uh, praying and reading of the scriptures is because we want to see God in his glory. And we want to be changed by that, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3. So today we come to one of the most well-known stories in the Bible. Not uh, a very uh, popular story. Not a story that you tend to uh, associate, maybe not the first story you share with your children uh, as you're going through the Bible and sharing with them all of the Old Testament stories, but a very well-known story I think that most people would at least be vaguely familiar with, and that is the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so if you'll go ahead and turn to Genesis 19, that is where we will be today, Genesis 19. Although we associate this story with sin and judgment, with depravity and destruction, we really should not lose sight of two things as we come to it. Because it is, in fact, a story about destruction and depravity. It's a story about God's judgment. But as we think about that, we cannot lose sight of these two things. First, it is also a story of rescue. And we see this right in the middle of it. So we go through the story, verses 1 to 29 of chapter 19 is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, the destruction of these cities. And right in the center, uh, almost right dead in the center, if you're counting the verses of this story, we see in verse 16, speaking of Lot, they brought him out and set him outside the city. So we know that this is not just a story of judgment, but it is a story of rescue. The second thing to consider that we cannot lose sight of is, and this is connected to the first, is that this story is not in isolation, but it is part of the story of Abraham. We have to remember that as we're going through Genesis from chapters 12 to 25, we're in a larger unit dealing with the patriarch Abraham. And so we're not just dealing with a one-off isolated story in the Old Testament here, but we are dealing with something that is folded into this larger narrative about God and his covenant man, Abraham. 
This is part of the ongoing saga of God's covenant faithfulness to Abraham. So if you look at the very end of the story in verse 29, this is what you read. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. So we see salvation, we see rescue, and we see this all wrapped up in the faithfulness of this covenant-keeping God to his covenant man, to his blessed man, to the person he has entered into, graciously entered into covenant with. And so we cannot, as we go through this story, as we think about this story from this day forward, as it comes into our minds, we cannot lose sight of these two clear realities. So in this story, I think we get blended together God's wrath against sin, which is a a glaring truth from the Bible, and his grace towards sinners. God's wrath towards sin, his grace towards sinners. And in that respect, we see that all throughout the Bible. And in fact, the most pivotal event in human history is at Golgotha. When the Lord Jesus Christ is hanging on the cross, dying for sinners, there we see in one moment, in one place, a demonstration at the same time of God's wrath against sin and his love for sinners. God's judgment, the seriousness of sin, his justice on sin, and his mercy, his grace, his faithfulness, his pity, his compassion. His kindness to sinners. Right there revealed in the cross. And we see this all throughout the pages of Scripture. So before we get into this narrative, before we get into this chapter, I think it's important to understand that the story of Sodom and Gomorrah functions really as in two ways. It functions both as a warning and an invitation. It is a warning to sinners. That any person, any child of Adam who picks up this holy book and reads these holy words should be warned that there is a God in heaven. There's a God who sits enthroned over the world and he judges sinners. We were sharing with our son last night during family worship that in fact God will punish. When all is said and done, God will have punished every single sin. That's incredible when you think about it. Sometimes we think about the gospel as God just sort of passes over or sets aside some sin and, and he punishes other sin. No, God punishes every single sin, either on you or on Christ, either on the sinner or on the sin bearing savior. And so we have here a warning that sin is serious, that judgment is serious, to flee from the wrath to come. But we also have here an invitation to come to this kind of God. That this is not a God who's just standing over you as Martin Luther understood it, who just wants to to smite you, just wants to destroy you, wants to take you out because of your sin. This is a God who's gone to great lengths to save us. A God who loves us. As his image bearers and who put his own son. It was the father who put his son on the cross. It was the father who bruised him for us. How deep the father's love for us. As the song goes. Behold the man upon the cross. The father 
sent his own son. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. So it's a warning. It's a warning about sin, and it is an invitation to sinners. Come to this Christ. So this morning, what better time, really, to come to this merciful God that we will see revealed. This rescuing God whom we will see revealed in these verses. So today we'll look at verses 1 to 29. And if I could summarize this chapter, really not the chapter, because that latter part at the end really has to be treated in its own right, there with Lot and his two daughters. It's hard to fold that in here. It's just too much to treat. But we'll look at that next time. But for these verses, verses 1 to 29, let me give you just a quick summary of what we have here. By means of two angels... God rescues Abraham's nephew along with his two daughters and destroys the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding area of the Jordan Valley. That's what we find in chapter 19. So the title this morning for the sermon is Deliverance and Destruction. We're holding these two things together. And there's three things as we walk through this text that I want you to see. And you'll find these on your bulletin. Three things to see. First... The wickedness evidenced. Second, the mercy extended. And third, the judgment exercised. So if you will, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's holy word. Chapter 19, verses 1 to 29. This is the word of the Lord. Perfect and profitable. For his people. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. His persuaded angels. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. One of the most troubling verses in the Bible. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Verse 9. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place 
For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against his people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters up, Get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him. So the men seized him. And his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city, literally rested him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh, no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly. For I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. You can go ahead and be seated. What an incredible story of God's power. His justice, his mercy, his love. Let's pray to this God. Our Father, we bow before you humbly. Father, we exalt you in our hearts, and yet we know that we never exalt you enough. We treasure you, and yet we treasure you holding on also to our idols. We delight in you, and yet the world lures us to itself. We are called to follow you, and we follow you much like Peter, getting distracted, John 21, with other things, with other people, not simply following your son. So, Father, we bow before you. We ask you for forgiveness for our sins, and we come before you knowing who you are. We do not know you perfectly. We do not love you perfectly, but we do know you, and we do love you by your grace. And we pray, Father, that our our knowledge of you would grow, and through that, through beholding you in your glory, in your manifold perfections, in your excellencies, 
in your attributes, your character, your nature, that we would be drawn to treasure you above all else, that this world would not compete with you for supremacy in our hearts. Father, we pray that this morning your word would speak clearly to us where we're at. God, we know that just as you drug Lot out of the city, you drag us away frequently from our sin, from our foolishness, from our weakness. We pray once again you would do that today, that you would be merciful to us. God, we know that you are a God abounding in love and faithfulness. As this story so clearly displays And so, Father, we ask that we would trust you afresh this morning, anew, that we would look to you freshly today in ways we haven't been doing before today, that this word from you through the Holy Scriptures, this this passage of of your holy book would penetrate our hearts and that we would leave here loving God and our neighbor better because we met here today. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we come now to these verses, we first have to look at the wickedness evidenced. Go ahead and look at verses 1 to 11. I'm going to read those again. We'll put the spotlight on those verses. The wickedness evidenced. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth. And said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house, and they called to Lot. Where are the men who, co- who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. So what's the point of these first 11 verses? Why are they here? What, are, what is the author intending for us to understand as we read these verses? Last week, we saw God telling Abraham what he was about to do. So if you remember at the end of chapter 18, verses 20 to 21, we read, Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So chapter 18 ends with God's intention to investigate. It really is this incredible sentence here because you're like, God, investigate? God, explore? God, figure it out? That really just doesn't 
jive with our understanding of who God is. We know all the way back from in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, all the way back to as we've gone through Genesis, we know that this God knows all and sees all. We've seen that in very many circumstances. One of those was recently when we saw that the Lord read Sarah's mind, essentially, and the Lord knew that she was laughing to herself as he's outside the tent in the form of a man there, and Sarah's inside the tent, and she laughs to herself, and the Lord says, why is Sarah laughing? Demonstrating the fact that he knows all. He can do all. He sees all. So what's going on here? Why this? Well, God wants to demonstrate his justice to his people. That he is an informed judge who weighs the evidence. Like at the Tower of Babel. Remember that? Chapter 11, verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. As though God couldn't see it from heaven. Of course God could see it from heaven. But what we're meant to get from this is that God is a just judge who is fully informed when he exercises judgment. He is a God who weighs the evidence, so to speak. He is just in every respect. And we get this at the end of time. You know, Daniel 12 talks about people being raised from the dead to stand before God. Every person who's ever died will stand before the Lord. And every person who's ever died apart from faith in God's promises fulfilled in Christ will stand before God and give an account for every single deed done in the body. Everyone. Every word. Jesus says, man will give an account for every foolish word which he speaks or careless word which he speaks. So we know that all people will stand before this God, that God knows everything they've ever done, that God knows all sin. He knows what's going on in every heart. He knows what's going on in every place. God wants us to understand that he judges justly. He will judge justly in that day and he judges justly Now, whatever he's about to do with Sodom and Gomorrah is just. And what we have in this opening scene at Lot's house is a confirmation. It is a confirmation of Sodom's wickedness. This is wickedness evidence. And you see it everywhere. And when you go through these verses slowly and you kind of piece it together, it really is incredible the mass of sin that you see. We are meant to get the same impression here with Sodom that we got before the flood. Do you remember the language that we got right before the flood? The intentions of man's heart, always evil, continually. This this extreme description in such concise language of the depth and breadth of sin. And that's what we get here with Sodom. There is no need for further investigation when you get to verse 11. And we see this confirmed, this wickedness confirmed and evidenced in a number of ways. It begins with Lot's concern over the angels staying overnight in the town square. They, are, they want to stay there. Lot says, come to my house. They say, no, we're going to stay here in the town square. And probably what that's meant to convey is that in the town square, certainly if the investigation is to happen, uh, that that's where they will find sort of the heartbeat of the city. But they don't have to be in the town square. The sin comes to them. Just something we're, we're meant to see. But 
It begins with Lot's concern over the angels staying there overnight. He pressed them strongly to come to his house. The language is intense. I mean, it's almost as though, he said, no, you, you must come to my house. You, ha- you cannot stay here. And so they say, okay. But we quickly see that no place is safe for visitors at Sodom. As a mob of lust-driven men surround Lot's house, they want to know the visitors sexually. This is oftentimes used in Scripture to know someone. It's clear from the context that that's what's in view here, given the the, uh, offer of the daughters, which we'll come to talk about that in a moment. They want to know the visitors sexually. And although some scholars and commentators have have desired to wiggle their way around this uh, clear uh, indication from the text of what exactly is going on. We see in the New Testament confirmation that that is what's going on here in this situation. As Jude 7 says, they indulged, speaking of Sodom and Gomorrah, they indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. That's the way Jude understands what's happening here in Sodom. 2 Peter 2.7 refers to their sensual conduct and that they indulged in the lust of defiling passion. In Romans 1.27, Paul likewise refers to homosexuality, which is what is at the very basic level going on here, as giving up natural relations, being consumed with passion for one another, and committing shameless acts. So clearly, at the very base here, what we have is this unnatural passion, this homosexuality of these men who have encircled Lot's home in order to be with these men. And to make matters worse, this homosexual conduct involved, listen to this, both young and old. All the people to the last man. Every man in Sodom has gathered around Lot's house to engage in this wickedness. Grandfather, father, and son. It is generational. It is pervasive. This is a wicked place. And even more, it was violent. This is not just homosexuality. This is an aggressive, violent homosexuality. They wanted to rape these men. They come at the door with force. Get the impression they're like monsters. They're clawing down the door. Whatever they can do to get in and satisfy their lusts, their passions. That is what we have here. And all of this on top of the basic fact that it was a great injustice to visitors. I mean, at this point, that almost seems tiny. But it is part of the story. It's part of the reason that Lot goes out. Is We don't really understand this as much these days. But in that culture, hospitality was so incredibly significant to ancient culture and society. So, so significant. And what we have here is a great injustice to people who would pass through and visit the city. So Lot pleads with them not to do this evil. Their response is to throw off Lot's warning and turn to attack him. And they say this, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. 
Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. So in a moment, they turn on Lot. And, you know, in thinking about Lot's relationship to this city, you have to remember that the entire city had been saved on account of Lot. All of the population and possessions had been carried off. Remember in chapter 14 by those invading kings? They had carried off all the people and possessions. And it was only because of Abraham and his 300 and some men and the people there helping him that that Lot and, and all of the other people and the possessions were rescued and brought back. So it's a, we imagine that after this happened, Lot would have been a little bit of a celebrity in Sodom. I mean, he was the means by which the people were saved. And so probably immediately he was elevated And we know the Lord's blessing was upon him because of the relationship that he had with Abraham. He had all of these possessions and these herds and so forth. And so, but after this, his, his reputation probably is elevated immediately. But here the city turns on Lot. They call him a mere sojourner. He's just an alien from somewhere else. And who is this man? Who does he think he is judging us? Now, here's what's incredible. This is the everyday language of our culture. Today, in the 21st century, this kind of uh, anti, as it's seen as anti-judgmentalism, this kind of idolatry of tolerance is in our culture today. And this should be striking to us reading this story. The men of Sodom outside of the door doing this wicked thing are, are echoed by what we hear today. You are just being judgmental. It's incredible. This is the the first response of those who are under the judgment of God. And when our lives exude God's righteousness and justice, when our lives are, are a testimony to who God is and his character, our very presence is disgusting to the world. Our very presence is like light shining in darkness. Men run from it because their deeds are evil and the light exposes their deeds. And so we hear, you're just judging. You're being judgmental. We talked about judging in Matthew chapter 7. We talked about what that looks like and why, how that can become sinful. But here we see that Lot is not judging unrighteously. He is judging rightly. He is stating what God has already stated to these men. And they will not receive it. And at the end of these verses, we see the incredible extent of their perverse determination. Even after being struck blind by the angels, the text says they wore themselves out groping for the door. They've been blinded. The angels have have reached out, grabbed Lot, pulled him into the house, blinded the men, and they are still trying to accomplish their lustful intentions. This is incredible. They didn't stop. They didn't fall down on the ground and go, whoa, we got to get away from this place. These guys are powerful. They didn't run away in fear. They continued. And I think this is a testimony not only to the power of homosexual desire, but to lust in general. Sexual desire, the lust of the flesh, drives us to incredible places. And it will push through many inhibitions. It will push through and destroy our lives. Abstain from fleshly passions that wage war against your soul, Peter says. Just a reminder to us this morning who may be engaged in sexual sin... 
and you're hiding it from your family and people that you know. You're playing with it, thinking it's okay. I think we have here a reminder of the destructive power it will yield in your life if you continue to play with this evil. So the wickedness of Sodom here is confirmed, but there is something else that is confirmed, Lot's righteousness. Now, now as a father of a daughter who's two, I have a really hard time reading this and thinking any good thoughts about Lot at all. The idea that Lot is righteous to me is unfathomable for that verse alone, which describes what he does with his daughters. Yet Lot is righteous. He is called righteous in the New Testament. Abraham had asked God if he would destroy the righteous with the wicked. And here, as the wickedness of the city is confirmed, so too is Lot's righteousness. His hospitality links him with Abraham. So we see a mark of his righteousness in his hospitality. And he stands in stark contrast to the rest of the city's male population. I mean, you can't read verses 1 to 11 and not see that there is a a wide gap between Lot and everybody else. He calls it wickedness. And they are trying to tear the door down blind. I mean, whether we want to throw something at Lot or not, it's clear here that he is understood as righteous, one who knows the Lord. 2 Peter 2.7, Peter calls him righteous Lot, as Walt read earlier, and says this about him. He was greatly distressed. So what's going on in Lot's heart over these years, Peter tells us? He was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Lot is not comfortable, although I think what Lot is incredibly worldly. He's not comfortable there. He is toiling over what's going on in this city. He hates what he is seeing. He does not approve of this evil. He's the only guy in town who doesn't. And for that matter, by implication, he's the only person in town. Given the fact what his daughters do later, I think probably quite likely he is the only person in the city who's having trouble with this evil. Lot is righteous. He has placed his trust in God. Yes, he has foolishly established his home in a debauched city. Yes, he appears to even be in a position of prominence in the city. He's sitting in the gate. I mean, he's probably one of the one of the prominent guys in this wicked place, bearing responsibility for the wickedness of the city, in part because he's probably a leader. That language, sitting in the gate, denotes that. Yes, he chooses hospitality to strangers over his fatherly care of his daughters, offering to give them up to men. This is a kind of man-pleasing mixed with a, a misplaced priority, mixed with uh, just a, a, kind of, a kind of perverted mind that has taken hold of him in this city. It's difficult to even explain what his rationale is as you read this. Some say he may have known that they would not take this offer. Given everything else we know about Lot, I tend to agree that that may have very well been the case. But regardless, we see here that this is a horrible thing for a father to do to his girls. Yes, Lot is a sinner. (laughs) He's clearly a sinner, a compromised man, in many ways a foolish man, and yet he knows the Lord. He has experienced God's grace. 
Lot is a testimony to the detrimental effect that the world can have even on a believer. Do you hear that? We think that we can just go and do, neglect the means of grace, immerse ourselves in the world. That's what we do, by the way. We immerse ourselves in the world, in popular culture. We immerse ourselves in the world's value system, and we neglect the means of grace. That's a recipe for worldly living. That's a recipe for a worldly home. That's a recipe for worldly churches. That's a recipe for worldliness, period. When we immerse ourselves in worldly values and jokes and and ideas, and we neglect God's word, this is the kind of thing that happens. So if you want a Christian life that never reaches above lot, then continue on. But if you want the kind of life that the Lord Jesus calls us to in the Beatitudes, if we want the kind of life that the Apostle Paul calls us to as a wrestler, as a farmer, as a soldier, fully armed against the evil one, then we must take note and fight the effect of the world on our hearts. And this leads us to our next point, the mercy extended. Look at verses 12 to 22. Verses 12 to 22. The mercy extended. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up! Get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy this city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh, no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. It's incredible here. If, if, you're, understand, if your picture of Lot was bad, it just kind of continues in that direction. Everywhere we look in these verses, we see God's gracious and caring attitude towards Lot which we've already seen when the angels pulled him to safety and protected him from the men at the door. We've already seen this grace extended to him as they saved him from that attack. And in verses 12 to 22, we see God's mercy to Lot everywhere. So I just want to go through this, and I want you to see all the ways that God is merciful to him through these verses. First, the announcement to quickly gather up his loved ones. He announces what he's going to do. He says, get everyone. The willingness to save even the laughing sons-in-law. Now, this is really incredible when you think about God's mercy. We know the character of these sons-in-law once we meet them a little later. When he goes to them, and what do they do at the, the notion? 
The, the idea, anyone with half a conscience at this point that's not seared to nothing would, would recognize that someone coming forward saying, God's going to judge this city is at least, should at least be taken somewhat seriously. The whole idea of God judging sinners and, and even more a city like this is a joke to these sons-in-law. Yet the angel says, if you have them, bring them. Which tells me that the Lord would have saved these men. But they laugh. The urging that we see in verse 15 As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. The whole mood, the whole tone of these verses is one of intense haste. Come on, let's go. We have to go. We have to go. Let me just say that when it comes to sin and God's judgment, that should be the attitude of every Christian heart. This kind of intensity. Are we just kind of slothy? Are we just laid back in the recliner of life? Anytime there is God's judgment and the seriousness of sin, we should be intense in our living, in our fighting against sin, not just chilling, hanging out, taking it easy. Go, quick. This is the language of these verses, and I think this stands over every life in this day. It's the wrath of God abides over the world, Paul says in Romans, Romans 1. And then we have this incredible scene where Lot is lingering. He won't leave the city. What in the world is going on in Lot's mind? I mean, Lot's psyche is just something to crack open and explore. We don't get much information about it, but it's hard to really understand what's going on. Why attachment to the city, his worldliness, his fear. He's just stunned. He's shocked. He's just not presented as a very good character. Certainly not a character to emulate, not a wise person. But he lingers. He won't leave. And the angels literally grab them all by the hand and pull them out of the city like children. They grabbed a hold of them like we do. If our child is standing in the road and we say to them, come, come, come now, come now. And they won't come. We run out there, grab them by the hand, jerk them out of the road, lest they get hit by a car. Lest they get killed. And that is exactly what we find here with these angels. Enough's enough. They grab hold of them and take them out of the city, literally rested them outside of the city. Same idea as when God rested Adam in the Garden of Eden. They were safe outside of this wicked, judged place. This is where the text explicitly tells us what we see throughout these verses. The Lord being merciful to him. Uh, the Lord, Lord's mercy was upon him. In verse 19, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. And you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills lest the disaster overtake me and I die. That's what he goes on to say. If lingering is not bad enough, then we get his complaining. He's complaining. I mean, he should just take off and sprint out of that place. But he's complaining to the angels, I don't really want to go there. I don't really want to go to the hills. Come on, guys. That's not where I should go. Can you send, you, can you send me somewhere else? He's arguing with God's angels. He wants to go to this little city nearby. What's interesting, he says, the reason he gives is because he'll die. In other words, he's also questioning their escape route. They've given him an escape route. They've told him. They brought him out of the sea. You go this way. You go to that destination. You're safe. 
And he said, no, 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 if I go that way, I'll die. Who does he think he's talking to? These are the people who just saved him, who just struck men blind. And if we thought God's patience and mercy had already been exhausted, we see this incredible concession and mercy towards the city. This is incredible. Verse 21, he said to him, Okay, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Notice that. He doesn't just say, okay, Lot, you can go there to Zoar. He says implicitly, well, Lot, that city was going to be destroyed too. But because you're going there, we won't destroy it. It's amazing. God, or Abraham had asked God, will you spare the city for 10? Here, God spares the city for one. And Lot doesn't even stay there. He leaves and goes and lives in a cave. Yet that city is still spared. And then like a cherry on top of all this mercy, the angels say in verse 22, escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. You hear that? God has given them strict orders. No fire. No judgment until Lot is safe and secure. That's incredible. I can do nothing till you arrive there. So hurry up. Go. This is God's mercy to a sinner, to a believer who has placed himself in a bad situation, who has been ineffective in leading others to righteousness. Lot has not been much of a witness in Sodom. He's the only guy whose priorities and responsibilities have become twisted, as with his daughters, who even resist the saving work of God. This is Lot. He is a believer, but he is weak. If feeble was the word we used for Abraham, we have to find a a far more extreme word for Lot. And I think what this tells us is, Christian, wherever you're at, you need to see the mercy of this God. Because undoubtedly, I imagine there are people here this morning who, when we look at Lot, you feel like Lot. The world has just encroached itself. Uh, When I talked earlier about neglect of the means of grace and the worldliness that's taken over your heart and your mind. And that's where you're at. And what you need to know is that the God who grabbed Lot's hands and carried him out of Sodom is the God who grabs your hand, who grabs your heart and carries you from this place of weakness to a place of strength. This is who he is. This is the Lord God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Behold him. Trust him. And call out for his mercy, like the tax collector, beating his chest. Matthew 18, Jesus said, have mercy on me, O God, a sinner. That man left justified, I tell you, Jesus said. And God will be gracious to us when we draw near to him with that ability and trust in his grace. But this mercy is a rescue from judgment. And that's what we see so clearly at the end of this account. So go ahead and look with me at verses 23 to 29 as we come to the final point, the judgment exercised. We've seen the wickedness evidenced. We've seen the mercy extended, and now we have the judgment exercised. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities. And all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities 
and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Here, God makes very clear that he punishes sinners. The burning sulfur comes directly from him, from him, from heaven. Like the flood, it is a powerful and comprehensive judgment. The language used is he overthrew those cities. The image of Jesus walking into the temple and they're buying and selling and all of this craziness, not worshiping the Lord, not seeing the temple as a sacred place, a place of prayer. And Jesus, in zeal for his father's house, comes in, grabs hold of the tables and just turns them over. That's what the Lord does here. He just turns over this wicked place. And it's comprehensive. All the people, even down to the vegetation. He makes this place uninhabitable. Pointless it is, I think, to look for natural explanations. Some, you can watch these. I'm sure Netflix probably has something on this. Uh, uh, some kind of documentary on how Sodom and Gomorrah could have happened. And so you're looking at, you know, your volcanic eruptions and earthquakes and electric, electrical storms and other kinds of things. And this happened. And this, if this came together and that came together and this came together just at the right time 4,000 years ago, then this city would have been destroyed. That's not what we're told. We're told it came down from the Lord from heaven. And whatever combination of supernatural and natural uh, means God used, we don't know. But what we know is that somehow, some way, God rained down burning sulfur to annihilate these cities in the valley of the Jordan, Sodom and Gomorrah, and the surrounding area. And when it comes to Lot's wife, we see something far beyond lingering. Lot lingered. But his wife did something more. The angels command them not to look back. But she travels behind Lot. She's a a little bit behind him as they're going on. And as the city is being destroyed, she looks back. At some point, it's not exactly clear when she looks back, but she looks back and the city is being destroyed. She gets swept up in that destruction and somehow becomes encased or encrusted in salt. We know this is near the salt sea. And so whatever it is that God is doing to destroy this place, somehow probably related to her being encased or encrusted in salt. And so we see, I think, the point that she is simply caught up in the judgment of this wicked city. And what it tells us is that Lot's wife is really a part of the city. That's what we need to understand here. She's every much a part of the city As those men who were gathered around Lot's house. It's not just her relatives and possessions that are there in Sodom. It is her heart. Her heart is in Sodom. And let me say it this way. Her heart is in the world. She clings to it. She loves it. It's not just her mom and dad and her brother and sister, perhaps. We don't know anything about her family. It's not just her things. She 
loves the world. And he who loves the world does not love the Father. John tells us in 1 John. And I think this is, this is instructive for us in this way. Lot and his wife show us the difference between a weak Christian, hear this, and a non-Christian. So catch this. This is very important. Because there may be some here this morning who are not Christians. And you think you're a weak Christian. Or maybe you're a weak Christian and you think you're not a Christian. So you're a weak Christian struggling with assurance of your salvation. Or you are a non-Christian who just thinks, well, I'm just a weak Christian. And I think what we have here is illustrative for us. It helps us think clearly about this distinction. Lot is weak. He is very flawed. The world has made its way into his life and his heart in incredible ways. He has given his daughters over to wicked men to marry. He's living in this city at the gate. Why did he leave this wicked place? And go back to Abraham, fall on his face and say, I'll take one tent and a little patch of land. Just not Sodom. But he doesn't. He's there. He's worldly. He's weak. He's foolish in many ways. But what we see is that he knows the Lord. He trusts in the Lord. When he hears the word of judgment, he recognizes that it is true, that it is real, that it is serious. He sees the seriousness of sin. He understands wickedness for what it is. And ultimately, when the Lord speaks, he follows. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Lot's wife is not that way. The world has her heart entirely. Which are you? You're struggling this morning? Maybe. More like Lot. Maybe. More like Lot's wife. So what effect should this story have on our thinking? Well, as we finish up this morning, Peter understood it to be a picture and a warning. His language in 2 Peter 2.6 is really incredible. For helping us understand how we should read this story. What do we get? What's our takeaway? We got lots of takeaways. But what is, what is the main thing we should take away from this story? Peter tells us by turning, this is what he says, by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them, listen, 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 an example, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Wow. You know what he's saying? He's saying that Sodom and Gomorrah is not over. That this will happen to the world entirely one day. That what these people experienced in Sodom will be experienced by a godless world that we live in. Much like Sodom today, where sexual perversion is celebrated and embraced. And if you don't embrace it, you're evil. Much like Sodom, we find ourselves in this world, much like Sodom. And what we need to know is that one day God will bring upon this entire world what he brought upon Sodom. A conflagration that will destroy everyone who does not know him. This is sobering. And it should sober us up about our lives, about what we've heard this morning about the message of Christ crucified, 
about the sins that we so easily allow to ensnare us and weigh us down, about our unsaved family members for whom we maybe do not pray, to whom we do not speak because we are embarrassed and ashamed. This is God's judgment. And Peter says, look at Sodom and know this is coming upon the whole world. This passage ends with Abraham looking out over the valley, seeing the concentrated smoke rising to the sky. This final scene reminds us what this story is about. That the Lord is indeed just and merciful. Remember where it began with the conversation between the Lord and Abraham. That's where it began. And then we have this story. Now we go back. We go back to the hillside. We go back to Abraham. We go back to Abraham. They're reflecting. The Lord is indeed merciful and just. And Abraham is to communicate and manifest this character for generations to come. If we do not tell our children about the God of justice and the God of mercy, we are not teaching our children about the God of the Bible. We're not teaching our children about the real God. We're holding up an idol. If churches do not preach about sin and hell and the coming destruction of the world, we do not hold up the biblical God and his ways. We hold up a different God, a different salvation. This is what we've been saved from. How can we embrace the Savior and be grateful for Him and treasure Him for what He is if we do not see what He saved us from? But it reminds us of something else. Lot is saved only because of Abraham. The text is clear in verse 29. Look there as we finish up this morning. Verse 29. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. What does this tell us? It reminds us that salvation is found only through Abraham. What? Hold on a second. Why are you saying that? Here's what I mean. God in his sovereign grace has determined that all salvation would be through Abraham's seed. All salvation comes through the seed, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is only because of him on his account, for his sake, that we are rescued from God's wrath on the world. Kiss the Son, Psalm 2 says, lest you be destroyed. Kiss the Son. Embrace the Son of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Son of God who came to rescue his people. The Son of God who is the ark of salvation. Embrace him, trust in him, or perish. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you that a story like this just clearly displays for us the reality of your judgment against sin. And God, how, how weak we are in our treatment of sin. How soft we are with ourselves in our sinful habits. How quick we are to casually pass over our own sins. To not mourn and weep and beat our breast before heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. For they shall be comforted, Jesus says. Father, help us mourn over our sin. And the sin of our neighborhood. The sin of our country. The sin we see in the lives of the people in our church. The sin that we see in our own hearts. Help us mourn sin, God. And see the reality of judgment that is to come. Thank you for our Savior, Father. He is our rock and our redeemer. 
He is the lamb and the lion. He is our God and our king, the lover of our souls, our treasure, our eternal delight and bliss. We praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that we would cling to him, that we would kiss the son, that we would trust in his finished work alone for our salvation and not in ourselves, and that we would choose him and not the world, that we would follow him, not like the rich young ruler who loved his possessions, but that we would follow this Christ to glory. In Jesus' name, amen.